Welcome to the Leadership Development Group's Health Ecosystem Leadership Podcast Series. We're excited to have you join us. My name is Tracy Duberman. I'm the founder and CEO of the Leadership Development Group. We are a global coaching and leadership development consultancy with an exclusive focus in the health industry. Over the years, we've had the distinct pleasure of working with some of the brightest talent in our industry, leaders who are clearly making a difference in the work they do to provide high quality care for those in need while designing approaches to enhance health and wellness. The purpose of this podcast series is to showcase how leadership is the essential ingredient to address the ever-growing issues and challenges facing the U.S. healthcare industry. As we know through our work, the great majority of these challenges are too complex and wide-ranging for any one sector to solve independently. This is where a health ecosystem leadership approach pays more than significant dividends. Solutions which emphasize how the various sectors of the health industry operate interdependently are the only ones with the potential to deliver on critical imperatives like affordability, access, and outcomes. During this podcast series, we will introduce you to some of the best and brightest health ecosystem leaders who will share practical examples of how they have successfully demonstrated a collaborative mindset, as well as the critical behaviors that lead to positive outcomes for their organizations, their patients, and the communities they serve. Nancy Howell Agee is president and CEO of Virginia-based Carillion Clinic, an integrated health system with headquarters in Roanoke, Virginia. Carillion serves the region's nearly 1 million residents and includes seven hospitals, which employs over 800 providers. Before becoming CEO in 2011, Ms. Agee served as Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer. During her time as COO, she co-led Carillion's reorganization from a collection of hospitals to a fully integrated physician-led clinic. The reorganization resulted in a partnership with Virginia Tech to create a medical school and research institute, which has quickly garnered over $100 million in external funding. Ms. Agee was recognized as healthcare's 100 most influential people for the past four years by Modern Healthcare and currently serves as past chair of the American Hospital Association. She was recognized by Virginia Business as Virginia Business Person of the Year in 2017 and named 50 most influential people in Virginia five years running. Last year, Ms. Agee was honored to be named the recipient of the Gail L. Warden Leadership Excellence Award in 2018. She holds degrees with honors from the University of Virginia and Emory University and honorary degrees from Roanoke College and Jefferson College of Health Sciences. It is a pleasure to have you today on the show. I have been looking forward to this podcast for quite some time, and I know you're a very, very busy executive, and I really appreciate the time today. Oh, I'm delighted to do it. Thank you for asking. Absolutely. So. In doing some research about you and your background, I understand that you have a very long history with Roanoke County, from your birth in Carillion Hospital to becoming a nurse there and now serving as CEO. Uh, what events do you attribute to your success? Well, yeah, I say, you know, I'm not as boring as I sound. I actually get out of town once in a while. Um, <laughs> But the truth is, I was born in one of our hospitals um, here in Virginia and um, am now the CEO of the organization. I, you know, I think that um, if you had to say one or two things that contribute to 
what I hope is a successful career as an executive. It, it is the, the notion that I was once a bedside nurse and that I genuinely love people and love helping people. And so early in my career, that was obviously helping a single patient one at a time. Now it's more he helping our uh, incredible staff, physicians, other leaders be able to do their job so that they can help a patient one at a time. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting to me when I interview folks that are running health systems or even uh, pharmaceutical or insurance companies that have that clinical experience as part of their professional experiences that led to their success. And I think it is really important that you have that connection to the patient uh, when you touch any sector within the industry. So I commend you for recognizing your potential to impact so many more individuals at a leadership level, um, but also recognizing that at the end of the day, it's the local delivery of the services, nursing, uh, laboratory, physician services that really make a difference in the lives of the individuals that you serve. So thank you very much for sharing that with, with our listeners. I think that's a great journey. I want to focus a little bit because you're in a very unique position and you've done some work in this area around the underrepresented. And it's interesting today in the, in the hashtag MeToo movement, but also there's a recognition in terms of um, gender inclusion in addition to diversity that executive teams really have historically been underrepresented by women and minorities. They're not necessarily mirroring the communities that they serve. So how do you counsel young professionals, whether they're women or minorities, anybody that's underrepresented on advancing their careers? I think this is a really important question. I think the whole notion of diversity, inclusion, and equity are particularly important. And it's regrettable that women and minorities do not have the same uh, percentage, if you just use percentages, in the executive suite as the community's in which they serve. Uh, and not only is this problematic, but it's worsening instead of getting better. So uh, it's something that I've been spending a fair amount of time thinking about, and I hope acting on, you know, frankly, early in, in my career, even maybe going back two years or more, I, I felt good about the fact that I was agnostic to um, color, race, you know, gender. Um, it was just who could do the best job. And, and frankly, I've become much more intentional in the last couple of years, um, moving from agnostic to intentionally paying attention to um, underrepresented groups, and in particular women and minorities. And I think when I um, uh, mentor others, first of all, I look for someone who's shown interest um, but I, I do remind people I have a little uh, turtle uh, right here I'm looking at actually in my office. And the reason I have a turtle is my favorite animal is because she doesn't get anywhere unless she sticks her neck out. And <laughs> I think that, um, you know, that's something that I, I encourage people to put themselves forward, get a little bit out of your comfort zone and um, in the vernacular of, of, uh, some others lean in, you know, get involved. There's 
ample opportunity. But I, I think, uh, regrettably, women and minorities sometimes want to be asked instead of putting themselves forward. The, the other thing I would say is to other women executives is to be a mentor and to, um, you know, not forget that there are others who helped us along the way. Um, how can we help others? And so I, I'd spend as much time mentoring um, women, in particular minorities, as I do uh, saying to colleagues in, in, in almost a, a parallel uh, mentorship of what can we do together to help others. Yeah, I think that's really important, the intentionality around that. And I wonder, within your organization, um, how, do you, how do you infuse that in your culture, um, specifically around ensuring that uh, Carillion represents not only at the mid-level and clinical level, but also at the upper-level executive uh, positions within your organization, that it represents the communities that you serve? How do you make it that intentional? Well, we, um, we've done several things. One is the, each of our hospitals has a board, and um, we do an assessment of the board. We really look at what are the needs of the board and then filling those board positions with a reflection of the community. We're not perfect at it. You know, we're, trying, we're working hard at it. Likewise, on the executive team here, our chief medical officer, chief administrative officer, myself, and, and our mm -hmm. founding dean for our medical school were all women. Um, and so we, we, we pay attention to that. And when we go to, re to research for a new, or to search for a new position, uh, when we use an external, whether we use an external search firm or use our internal um, recruiters, we indicate that we want to give preference to in an intentional way. Now, they didn't always easy to do, and I'd be the first to say we, we are not perfect at it, but we are more intentional about it. You know, I think we have, it's sort of a cultural thing. I think we have um, good support across the organization uh, for the diversity, inclusion, and, and in particular, use the word equity. You've probably seen or heard that in some organizations, there's a disparity in pay from women to men. And uh, we did, it, when I heard that, I thought, well, that surely isn't happening here, but could it? And so we did a, I uh, had some research done, and thankfully, no, it's not happening here. But that that's even happening in today's world and other places is alarming. And I, I think, we, again, we have to be very intentional about all three pieces of, of diversity. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. The transparency is, is really important, um, especially I think of this, the podcast series and some other work that we're doing around uh, health ecosystem leadership as an opportunity for people that are working in the field to understand that there's really amazing people that are doing amazing things that could be transferable to their organization. So I think it's, I, I appreciate you being uh, so open with what you're doing uh, within Carillion and the fact that you don't necessarily have all the answers, nor do you understand if you even have a, a, a problem until you do an investigation. And I think that that's a, a step in the right direction. So uh, great. I, and I, I just 
love watching the work of your organization. And it, you know, it's so encouraging as a woman to see the number of women that you have um, in the executive ranks there. And I've, I've met several of them over the course of my years in this industry, and they're all, you know, amazing, powerful uh, women who are doing wonderful things. So thank you for, for, for leading from the helm. Thank you. Um, you are also known uh, in the industry as being uh, a servant leader. And I'd like to understand how you integrate that into your culture and your leadership philosophy. Uh, what approaches have you taken to do that? So I didn't really understand what servant leadership was or that it was a phenomenon or a philosophy, a theory of leadership until a few years ago. And a physician friend of mine gave me a book about servant leadership with a very kind note and said, this is the kind of leader I think you are. Mm. Since then I've become, and I guess that was a mentoring moment from him, wasn't it? Um, since then yeah. I've um, a, a more of a disciple of servant leadership. And for me, what it means is, is, is serving as the kind of leader um, that puts others first, that puts their needs so that they can lead. And um, this, to me, is a part of our culture. So our culture, I think, is reflected in some of our values, which, is, which include curiosity and compassion encourage and um, for me servant leadership is quite natural um, but it's something you need to pay attention to we have a saying here take risk um, but don't be reckless said another way take your work seriously but yourself not so much and and that's the culture where we're trying to build here <clears throat> the um, uh, frankly, I was uh, at Disney some years ago in a leadership or management training course, which was so good. And they said, the number one job of the manager is what? Sort of open-ended. I'll never forget that. It was like to take care of the customer, right? The visitors. And they said, absolutely wrong. The number one job of the manager is to take care of the staff so they can take care of the customer. And that's exactly how I feel as a servant leader. Um, what can I do to remove barriers um, to facilitate the work of those who are actually taking care of our patients or our, our consumers? And um, that's not always easy. Um, yeah. you know, I'd like to say patients first, of course they are. But that's not my job every day. And if I don't know what my job is, then how can others do their job, right? Um, and so that's, that's how I perceive servant leadership in the role that I have. That's a really nice explanation. Thank you. It all starts, though, with having an, an incredibly um, uh, easy, easy to recognize and motivating vision of, of what the future ought to look like. And you were ahead of the curve when most uh, health systems were investing in buying, acquiring, merging, partnering with other hospitals. You uh, started a primary care movement, really, a network. And I'm wondering how you, how you determined that that would be your strategy well ahead of the curve 
and how you can continue to disrupt the traditional models. And I love the risk, the risk saying that you just said, right? You don't want to be reckless, but you do want to be able to take risks. So how do you infuse that in your culture? Well, let's start with primary care because I do think it's in some ways our, our secret sauce. Um, but you know, the saying you better, it's better be lucky than good. I'm not sure that we were as strategic a thinker at the time as it seemed the right thing to do. And, and by that, I mean, we had um, uh, purchased this primary care group. It was a very large uh, group uh, across a wide geography in Virginia um, back in the 80s and early 90s when that was popular. They said they coalesced. Uh, they were largely just small, you know, small private practices coalesced and said, we want, we want a buyer. Um, and if you don't, someone else will. It was, it was almost that um, start, and we did. But, but one thing I, I think is important about our organization is that we, um, we're very loyal uh, to each other. And once we started developing that group and that relationship, it became integral to who we are and what we do. And so at times when other organizations were divesting of primary care, we saw it as part of our mission, uh, our mission to improve the health of the communities we serve. And so it was an extension of our mission, uh, not just hospital services, but services that were really needed in so many of our communities. And it became the backbone then of our organization. So when we <clears throat> made a... Uh, very strategic move to to go from a collection of hospitals and employing about at the time about 300 physicians to a model that was a physician-led model and um, using the word agnostic again but being agnostic to where care is so not so much hospital-based services but how do we um, provide access and affordable care across our footprint that that's how the primary care um, component of our organization um, became really integral. <clears throat> and now we employ uh, we employ about a thousand physicians and have another eight hundred, whether they're providers or residents um, and uh, and advanced clinical practitioners as part of our group. Um, but it's pretty evenly divided between primary care and specialty and subspecialty care. And we think that makes a big difference. We changed our primary care practices to medical homes and began a real education uh, of the practices themselves and, and of, of how we deliver care around what's now called population health. This actually preceded sort of the whole movement of population health um, and accountable care. And, and that, to me, has been a, a real difference in our approach to care so that it's not focused on necessarily hospital care. That's not to take away hospital care at all. It's very important to us. And, um, and yet, how do we improve access? And, and we've used our, um, that vehicle both for population health and have, been, I think, been fairly successful there. Um, but also to identify 
what are better what are other ways and better ways that we can deliver care so we have an electronic health record enterprise-wide we have a variety of other services like home health and, and urgent care and so on all of which are on our electronic health record and through that we have a patient portal um, we do both synchronous and asynchronous hospital, uh, physician visits um, we are doing uh, telehealth uh, in several areas one that's been a, a particularly important has been psychiatry so extending the psych psychiatric services and we're doing that in concert with our primary care arm so that um, the primary care physicians also being educated about psych services and I think learning more about what they can do but then the patient and the patient's family um, are recipients of telehealth and are so excited about it so that they don't have to drive when you think about our system it's uh, it's about 250 miles across and um, if I you know left my office today I'd be driving three and a half four hours to get to the furthest hospital well, those patients can't just drive here to Roanoke or to, uh, it's just, it's not like just inconvenient. It might be unsafe to, to drive. So I think we're going to see a lot more in the area of telehealth. And I'll pause there and say telehealth needs a definition. So it's not, you know, it, it, it there's a lot to it. I think we will. Um, be delivering more care right to the desktop. Um, we're looking at a lot of ways to increase care to the individual. I think you'll see more precision medicine, um, really focusing on the specific care that a single person needs and not care they don't need. And so we've implemented uh, the, the whole notion of choosing wisely, sort of the right care at the right time for the right person and we're embedding that work into our electronic health record a lot of uh, different answers I guess I, I went there but um, what what's important to us and where we're spending a lot of time is thinking about improving access and improving the affordability of care and I think that gets that what's the right care we're also doing a fair amount, as you mentioned, in um, wellness and prevention. Uh, you know, we have wellness centers. Uh, we're really focusing on our own employees' health, and um, in general, working towards helping people be as healthy as they can, um, despite the fact that they may have chronic illnesses. Yeah, yeah, and it, it really is a shift in the industry, um, especially the, the hospital industry, where the focus has been, at least over the course of my career, on uh, treating the patient once the sickness occurs, as opposed to uh, being a partner in promoting health and wellness for as long as possible and keeping people out of the system as long as possible. Um, so that's that's great. You've been doing a lot of wonderful work in that area. As you know. Our organization focuses pretty heavily on leadership. We say that really is the most important element to any type of change process, which, of course, you've been leading uh, beautifully within Carillion. 
You also instituted a matrix structure, and I know a dyad structure as well, uh, physicians and nurses, and you can add executives into that as well. Um, tell, if you could, tell our audience a little bit about how that process works, what you've been able to um, structure in the organization to make sure that that relationship works as effectively as possible. So as important as um, wellness and um, prevention and helping people live as healthy as they can, I, I want to also say that I think acute care and hospital care is incredibly important and will continue to be so. And we have very sophisticated services in our hospitals. The reason I answered that like that to begin with is to say we're organized um, across our enterprise, regardless of care site. And so uh, we have an executive team, of course, and then um, we have a chair of each division and a vice president. So the chair and, and vice president's a dyad leadership model, and they're responsible organizationally, financially, strategically, operationally, and from a quality perspective for all the things that happen within that division across all care sites. Ooh. And every hospital also has a lead. We call that a vice president. Other organizations call that a CEO. But that lead works with the chair and the vice president um, for all the work that happens within that department. So for instance, a surgical department, uh, department of OBGYN, department of imaging. Um, so we go, we have an organization that's very matrix and that's both horizontal and vertical. And if, perhaps what's most important is that we're very transparent. So all information is right out there. People have not just have access to it, but are expected to know all that information and to share that, to question, to come together. We probably have a lot of meetings, <laughs> but I think, uh, I think the meetings are important. So the Board of Governors meets once a month, and the Board of Governors is made up of the chairs of each department as well as the executive team. Okay. And we meet once a month, and we talk, we talk strategy, we, we make all the capital decisions for the organization, and we serve to credential all physicians. So all of our physicians are credentialed whether they work in a hospital or not. And that's a pretty big distinction, I think, for us. Um, then the chairs themselves meet each week, and it's usually an hour, hour and a half meeting. Uh, they talk freely amongst themselves about issues that they're facing about finances uh, you know it, it we're uh, very open to being questioned uh, to um, not agreeing and uh, and yet being able to talk those things out and then coming together then it, we have a, a variety of other meetings our senior management team meets once a month the clinical operations staff meet often of course we have daily huddles in the hospitals um, I guess the point is that very open communication, but there's some discipline around that. So we don't just expect it to happen. We have mechanisms for that. 
and sharing of information very freely. Mm -hmm. That really speaks to your physician-led model. Uh, do you have the same complementary structure at the executive level as well, if you look at the hospitals that make up your organization? So, uh, good question. Um, so, the, the chair of, Med I'll use the chair of medicine and the vice president for medicine. Um, again, they're responsible for everything that happens, and that's a, that's a very big department, uh, which includes everything from infectious disease to, to internal medicine to rheumatology and so on. Um, so they would work with the vice president at a hospital if there were hospital needs that needed to be addressed. The, the, our hospitals range from a small micro hospital to two critical access hospitals to two large community hospitals to the third largest hospital in Virginia. So depending on the size of the hospital, there could be other resources. At the large tertiary quaternary center, um, there are three physician leads that work with um, work with the executive team there. That wouldn't be true necessarily of our critical access hospitals. Yeah. Executive team, the chief operating officer for the system and the chief medical officer serve as dyad, and the chairs of all the departments and the vice presidents report to them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's terrific. Very, very well thought out, um, and I appreciate you sharing it. Thank you. Uh, the other recent innovative uh, arrangement for you has been the partnership with Virginia Tech, really, which is a, one of the top tier medical schools. What, what I found really interesting is that the interview process approach that you implemented in choosing a partner was to have local community activists or leaders or folks interview the school candidates. So why did you choose this approach and the application process in this way? Well, let, let me uh, talk first of all about the medical schools. So when we moved from uh, a collection of hospitals and employing some physicians to this physician-led clinic model, uh, that was a big enough un undertaking along with implementing a, an enterprise-wide electronic health record and doing a replacement hospital and we just decided to do it all. So my then boss came and I was the chief operating officer to me one day and said, well, you know what, why don't we just start a medical school? How hard can that be? <laughs> <laughs> and he's a smart guy, it was tongue in cheek, but it was hmm, interesting idea. We had been involved in graduate medical education for quite some time. At the same time, Virginia Tech was considering had established that they wanted to be a top-tier research university, but they didn't have any medical education. So timing was right. We both came together, created a medical school. We wanted the medical school to be different and distinctive and uh, had a focus on research. Now, that's a little comical in hindsight because we weren't doing any, certainly any bench and not much clinical research, and Virginia Tech wasn't either, and somehow we're going to create this school with a focus on research. Um, so we created a research institute, and I think, as you said at the beginning, we went from zero external funding to now more than $130 million in external funding in just mm. eight years. 
to, and all of our medical students um, have a curriculum that, well, the curriculum for the medical students is a research intensive curriculum. Starting a new school isn't easy. And we knew that the students needed to not just be brilliant, but to be well-rounded and be the kind of doctor that you would want. And how could we have our community embrace the medical school, something they knew nothing about, and have the medical students embrace the community? We gave a lot of thought to that. You know, a medical student who was going to go to a brand new school before it was even accredited uh, had to take some risk. And we made a decision right at the beginning that we would only take the very best medical students because you couldn't go into a hole, you write, and start plumbing yourself out of it. We needed to be, we needed top tier students from the beginning. So we created um, this. We looked around, we found a couple examples, particularly in Canada, where the community helped to assess the potential student. And so that has become hardwired in our admission process, um, where we invite people from the community to literally come in and spend a day interviewing the students. And they're interviewing the students specifically around an ethical question and then they rank the students. It's been a phenomenal success, not only to, I think we get the best students you can imagine, but the community has so embraced the medical school. And on any given day, you can walk over to the medical school and someone's delivered homemade cookies or brought, you know, gift certificates to the restaurant or gift certificates to the to the theater, you know, just really wanting to know how they can be involved. And you'd think after eight years, it would get muted. Instead, it's just grown. And, and the community thinks of this medical school and the students and the faculty as sort of the most important thing that, that they can imagine. Mm. Have you been able to, based upon this program, retain some of the best and brightest graduates in your local area? We have, um, at least into our residency programs, um, we have, uh, we don't have anyone yet, we don't have any graduates yet of our, of residencies. However, just, uh, I was, that was very humbled to be the invited speaker at the graduation of the medical school a few weeks ago, and the, the alum that was there, who's just a, a fabulous uh, resident. She's a chief resident, and she's very much wanting to come back here to work. So it's just beginning. It's very exciting. <laughs> That's wonderful, really wonderful. And I love how you said she. Terrific. Yeah. <laughs> and now, now are we able to, uh, I think, are now able to recruit the best and brightest medical students and soon to be alum who come here and practice, uh, but has uh, really helped us recruit some of the finest people in the world, uh, world-class physicians who are coming here to be a part of all that we're achieving, both with Carillion and with uh, Virginia Tech Carillion. Yeah, it's amazing. Really, really well done. And uh, 
you put the intention out there to do something fabulous and challenging and um, you you made it happen. So it's a, a testament to your resiliency. Um, the other thing that you, you've spoken out a lot about um, from, from, a, from an interest that we have is the ability to work with diverse stakeholders where you may have competing mission or vision or even values in some way, but you are able to partner together to reach a particular goal. I would like to know if you could share with us an example of an obstacle that you faced in trying to partner with some external organization and how you've overcome that obstacle. Great question. I would say, I'll offer this. So with Virginia Tech, um, we found even early that you could almost use the same words and mean something different. Faculty. When we talk about faculty, we essentially meant physicians. When they talk about faculty, it never occurred to them to mean physicians. And they're a little bit different in how they approach education, certainly how they're funded, and um, the regulation around which you employ them. And it, it took us a while to figure out that we're using similar words, but we mean something very different. The, the other thing that um, we found out pretty quickly was how do you fund things and what are the regulations around that? So a university, especially a state-based university, has certain requirements in the way they can spend funds. They have a foundation which in some ways gives them unrestricted funds, but much, much of their funds are restricted. And the way they're organized depends, it will create dependency on a university, not on a medical school or a partnership. So um, for us, we didn't have those uh, regulations, uh, restrictions. But when we, when we first started, both uh, Virginia Tech and Carillion agreed to put up $35 million each, and the state was putting another tranche in of about $50 million. Uh, well, very quickly, Virginia Tech found that they couldn't give that money to the entity. Well, we couldn't give $70 million to the entity, so what could we do? And, you know, I think, you know, carefully we sit down and talk through what were the real issues, were there ways to go about this that we could both be faithful to our commitment and create this thing we're attempting to create and we were able to do that um, but it, it took a little give and take on both parts and some creativity um, and uh, and we got there good good it probably I would imagine the fact that you both walked into this uh, potential partnership with um, open, open arms, you know, you didn't know necessarily what you were going to find, but you were committed to trying to work through the challenge to the best of your ability. That starts, I think, with, you know, just having trusting, authentic conversations, which you clearly demonstrate. Um, but I think it's an important learning for, you know, folks that are rising in the industry that um, it's okay to it's okay to say what you don't know and to work together to try to find an answer, but there's no expectation that everybody has all the answers all the time. 
incredibly well said. You know, I think sometimes it's the unexpected things too, things that seem so simple to us every day. I'll give you another example. We have two different email systems. Our faculty are on acrillianclinic.org. Virginia Tech is on a virginiatech.edu. And there's a firewall, you know, you're not going to cross that. So finding workarounds for things that seem so simple got, you know, were frustrating at first and you didn't, you were surprised where they came from. But yeah, being open, thinking it through, you can usually find a solution. Yeah, that's great. So this brings me to my final question, which I ask all of our, our interviewees, and that is, what do you want your legacy to be as a leader in the health industry? It's got a long, long time until that happens, but <laughs> it's good to be thinking about it. Yeah, <laughs> it is always good to be thinking about it. Thank you for the question. We get so busy with the business of healthcare. And I hope that my legacy is that, um, is that I always remind us that we remember why we're here. And that's to be faithful to our mission to take care of the patient. Um, to me, that, that's sort of the most important part. Secondarily, um, I hope that I'm remembered for helping uh, a folk, helping create the focus on affordability and access. Uh, said differently, bringing real value to healthcare. And it seems to me right now we need that more than ever. Um, there's this national conversation going on that can be thorny and and sometimes discouraging, but people want. Healthcare, they believe in the great health care that we have in our country, uh, but they can't always access it and it's not always affordable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it's a step in the right direction. And I have to say that um, watching your career over the course, course of my career has been um, amazing. I'm really excited to continue to watch you grow and watch all the wonderful things that you're doing. Um, there as well as wherever life shall take you next thank you so thank you very very much nancy for your time for your energy for all that you do to help um, improve health and wellness throughout the country um and i uh, i look forward to um continuing the dialogue somewhere down the road sounds terrific thanks so much tracy thank you for those of you interested in learning more about leadership please visit us at tld group's website Join us for more interviews with health ecosystem leaders during our podcast series. And of course, stay tuned for the release of our book entitled From Competition to Collaboration, How Leaders Cultivate Cross-Sector Partnerships to Deliver Value and Transform Health. Thank you for joining us.